You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Good afternoon to you, Dr. Smith, and thank you for joining us. Um, part, you know, My pleasure. I, I think you, you didn't know this. Part of the reason why I agreed to do the show is just to have a chat with you and find out more about the world <laughs> of science and what, what, what happens out there. Eh? Well, Merry Christmas, and uh, thanks for having me, and um, thanks for, for you giving up your afternoon to come and chat. <laughs> Only a pleasure. Um, as I said, uh, people better start dialing in now on 11 um, so that they can start asking their various bits of, of interesting questions and, and things that will uh, keep you occupied and busy for the rest of the afternoon. But is there any interesting, t- while we're waiting for that, is there an interesting tidbit that you want to share with us in the interim, good doctor? Uh, well, of course, the thing that's really dominating the world is, is what Omicron is mm. doing. The variant picked up in southern Africa by researchers in Hauteng. And... Um, and obviously now we're all waiting, poised to see what the impact is going to be. It's certainly spreading. We're seeing lots of transmissibility going on. We're seeing probably in the UK, we think we've got about 100,000 cases per day. The majority of them now Omicron in some parts of the country. So it has spread very, very quickly. Wow. What we're not seeing, though, are consequences. We're not seeing this at the moment mapping onto people losing their lives, people in hospital. And this is putting politicians in a very difficult position because, of course, on the one hand, they've got these climbing skyrocketing case numbers doubling in, in a couple of weeks. Yet we're not seeing it mapping onto serious adverse outcomes yet. But that's kind of mitigated by the fact that we know people don't catch COVID and immediately head off to hospital. So it puts them in a really difficult position. Do they need to act hard, act fast, act mm. decisively, close things down, stop it spreading? Lots of European countries are doing that. The Netherlands has got another lockdown. Other countries are earmarked to follow suit. Um, the the French have, have done a, a, what the UK did to South Africa and uh, you know made us persona non gratis. You can't travel there. So that's put the kibosh on lots of people's ski holidays. And a lot of this is reactivity to mm, a threat mm. we don't know yet. So really, it's it's a very interesting time because, I mean, a lot of people are saying, is this an overreaction? We're going to have to get used to living with COVID, not trying to stop it. We keep adopting this mindset of we can stop it. We mm. can't. So therefore, at what point do we, do we say we actually have to ease off on this and have a different approach? So... I think the next couple of weeks are going to be very interesting, actually, where it goes. I mean, how are things, how are things looking now? I mean, what's, what's most, most people's view in South Africa now on this? I mean, listening to what you were saying now, interesting. I just had a, a quick chat with uh, um, a, a doctor, a health practitioner, who was saying exactly what you're saying there, or echoing uh, your sentiments, is that we need to stop this whole idea of trying to stop COVID-19 and we need to manage uh, manage it and and what we were talking about specifically was within the context of travel and interprovincial travel within South Africa and uh, about you know the same time last year we we put a complete halt on travel and people weren't allowed to go see family members and go on their holidays etc cetera, etc cetera. whereas for now uh, we don't seem to have the same situation so hopefully um, that remains and that prevails and that we manage it and that, you know, we maintain the necessary health protocols, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that we don't spread this further. But the whole idea of trying to shut it down is just seemingly not going to happen. And then if we have time, uh, doctor, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick your brain in terms of how long and, and what we should be preparing for, what type of future we need to be preparing for. Um, but I see that the, the listeners are coming in with their calls thick and fast. If you don't mind, can I go to Joe and Kalani? Joe, good afternoon to you. Uh, hello, uh, uh, Dr. Smith. I'd like to know the mechanism of action of these 
new chemotherapeutic agents which are on trial in the treatment of COVID. Right, okay, yeah. This is a budding and growing area which is also creating headlines. Mm -hmm. And they fall into several categories. The, the tried and tested ones that were first on the scene were these monoclonal antibodies. And these are basically lab-made, very high levels of antibodies which have been picked from patients who fought off coronavirus and then produced in the laboratory, in the test tube, to very high concentrations, which bind to certain parts of the outer coat of the virus and immobilize it. So they basically endow you with what is called passive immunity. You're giving people a big dose of the antibodies that you would make naturally having fought off the virus, but you're giving it without having to take the time to build the immune response. So it basically gives your immune system a head start over the virus. They are proving pretty good against some variants of the virus, but some of these agents don't work against the Omicron variant. So that's something of a setback. The other agents which have burst onto the sea more recently include molnupiravir, which is made by Merck Sharp and Dome. This actually is an older drug. They were already working on this before the pandemic started for other purposes, and it's been repurposed as an anti-coronavirus agent. And this has the ability to cut down the rate of severe disease by about 50%. In a small trial, Merck Sharp and Dome reported that the number of people who got severe disease in their control group was about 15%. That's what we would expect anyway mm-hmm. for people running into coronavirus at random. Those medicated with the agent, that, that rate fell to 7%. That one works by looking like the genetic material that the virus would normally assemble inside one of your infected cells. And the virus mistakenly incorporates this piece of genetic material into its own genome, where it then destroys the ability of the virus to continue to produce its own genome and grow. So it basically uh, throws a spanner in the toolbox in the the works of trying to uh, grow new viruses. The other one, which... Mm -hmm. uh, Pfizer have invented is called Paxlovid and this is the first real dedicated anti-coronaviral drug and this one works by blocking up the ability of the virus to make new virus particles and the way it does it is when these coronaviruses grow inside our cells they produce what's called a polyprotein so the virus basically produces a big long sequence of all the building blocks that it needs to build new viruses and then it also produces a pair of scissors which chops up the big long protein into all the little bits which then assemble themselves in the right way. The drug comes in and it robs the virus of that pair of scissors. So to give you a different analogy, it's rather like you've got a building site. All the raw materials are delivered and they're put on site and then the carpenter comes along with a saw and chops all the timbers into the right length pieces of wood that you can then use to build a house. If you take away the carpenter's saw, You've got all these bits of wood there, and they won't make a house that works. So Mm. not going to get built. Mm. That's basically how that drug works. And that one looks really very effective indeed. It's giving very, very good results at converting what would otherwise be a lethal infection into a non-lethal infection. But it still has has yet to go through regulatory approval. So regulators will be looking at this very closely. They'll be looking Mm -hmm. at the track record at the data that Pfizer are able to offer them. And then they'll be able to decide whether to give it perhaps emergency approval, which is you give it short-term licensing on an emergency basis, and that enables them to gain further insights, data, evidence of of effectiveness or not, work out what the side effect profile is. It's being used as an emergency measure, could be used in very vulnerable people, and and then you can appraise it later for other groups and, and full licensing and so on. So that's where we are at the moment with most of the drugs. 
Absolutely fascinating. Let's go to Andre in Annadale. Andre, uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, Doc, just a quick question. Um, my microwave, I have to always stand in front of the microwave to see when my boil over. Must there be a film on the door? Because I'm starting to look through the film to see when it's boiling. Oh, so what you're saying is that your micro, uh, microwave door, you, the, the door on your microwave oven isn't completely transparent. There's this foam over it that makes it... Okay, great stuff, Andre. Thanks. Uh, did you get the question there, Doc? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the point that many people are wondering is, well, if I'm, if I'm using a form of light, because microwaves are electromagnetic radiation, similar to light that mm-hmm. you can see, why can the microwaves be prevented from coming out, but visible light can get out so i can see my lunch cooking inside that grill if you look at it is carefully constructed so that the sizes of the holes allow out the visible light but microwaves which are much bigger can't get through the microwaves in your oven are produced by a device called a magnetron Mm. which produces waves that have a wavelength of about 12 centimeters so in other words if you drew a wiggly wave and you measured the distance between the top of one wave and the top of the next wave, that would be about 12 centimetres. So they're quite big waves, but there are lots of them. So it produces 1.45 billion of those every single second. And they heat food by making the water molecules wiggle up and down where there are the tops and the bottoms of the waves. But because light waves are much, much tinier, as in they're not 12 centimetres, the size of the light waves is measured in nanometers, so they are orders of magnitude smaller those holes in the grill are easily big enough for light waves to fit through so you can see but they're not big enough to let the microwaves fit through so you don't cook the room but you can see what's being cooked inside so in other words you can't ever have a completely transparent microwave um microwave oven door um there will always be those little you you probably could um you you probably could because you could do it in a way that would still be a very you you could have very thin wires across there which ah. would soak up the energy the microwave but it adds cost and it would not really confer more utility because you can do it very cheaply very safely very light easy materials with the grills that we use because at mm. the end of the day mm. people don't want to watch a microwave like they watch television do they <laughs> they just want to be able to practically see is my dinner cooked is yeah. it boiling over do i need to go and rescue my pizza or or can i can i safely leave it cooking a bit longer yeah, I think to some extent, Andre wants to watch it very closely because he's worried about whatever he's busy <laughs> bo- not boiling What's over. <laughs> what is he putting in there? Uh, let's go to Pedro in Florida. Uh, Pedro, uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Doc. My name is Pedro. <clears throat> My question, how do they monitor uh, prisons, lengthy prison sentences? Let's say identical twins are sentenced to two different, uh, the same prison, the one is sentenced to 12 years and the other one sentenced to 15 years. And uh, how are they going to keep record over these people over lengthy years? And uh, how is record kept? And what if the files are burned down or does the files disappear? Without in the absence of tattooing on their bodies. <laughs> how will they ever keep record? I might have to become the naked lawyer rather than the naked scientist <laughs> in this question, but... Uh, I, I guess what you're hinting at is that with twins, if they're identical twins, they're genetically identical as well. And there have indeed been legal cases where one twin has tried to blame a brother or a sister for committing a crime on which they were condemned on the basis of genetic evidence. And they were saying, well, it wasn't me, it was my brother or my sister. 
The answer is that, that although identical twins do look identical, because they are genetically the same, that doesn't mean that they remain the same throughout life and they will age at different rates. Lifestyle will play a very big role. And also there's a healthy helping of chance in how the body develops. So even identical twins will have some non-identical features. A mole will be in a different place. Coloration might be very slightly different. The way in which the, the body shape is configured will be very slightly different. So I think that there are ways of telling people apart, even though you can't do it genetically. And there are other ways that people also have other distinguishing marks, like tattoos and piercings and so on, which are often used in these sorts of cases to distinguish between two individuals. But you're right. If you just did it on genetic grounds, you can easily get misled. Hmm, interesting one. And uh, makes you think, uh, as identical twins, I don't know, the one could pick up... Um you know, uh, a more increased habit, uh, eating habit, uh, whereas the other one could be slimming down and living a more healthier lifestyle. And that, that I, I, I had a couple of friends who were twins, and they definitely did the age-old chestnut of dating each other's girlfriends to do a real good comparison. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> My goodness. I, I still don't understand why anyone would want to do that. Let's go to Guy in Johannesburg. Guy, good afternoon. Yeah, hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm very interested to know the doctor's view on how aircraft wings generate lift. I know that there are two schools of thought at this stage, and I'd be interested to see how he reconciles them. Hello, Guy. Thanks. Well, the, the very simple solution to this is that it all comes down to Newton's laws. And Newton taught us that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And that's his third law. And for a wing to generate lift, the wing must be exerting a force on something which then exerts an equal and opposite force back on it. Now the only thing that a wing can exert a force on when the aeroplane is in flight is the air. So therefore the force must be coming from the air and in order for the air to be pushing up on the wing, the wing must be pushing down on the air. So the simplest way to think about this, rather than invoke all kinds of complicated Bernoulli arguments and all that, is to just think about Newton's law and say that if the air is exerting a force on the wing, the wing must be pushing the air down so that the air pushes the wing up. And if you consider the bottom side of the wing, wings are higher at the front than they are at the back. So as the air travels over the underneath surface of the wing, it is being pushed down. And if you push air down, it pushes you up. So the bottom side of the wing generates lift for that reason. Then you'll say, but what about the top? How does that generate lift then? Well, the answer is that there was a scientist called Henri Coanda who uh, gave rise to a phenomenon we now call the Coanda effect in recognition of his insights. And this describes the sticking of a fluid to a curved surface. The upper surface of a wing is curved downwards from the front towards the back. And as air goes over that curved surface, the curved surface pulls the air down onto it because air sticks to a curved surface. And if you pull air down onto a surface, the air, of course, must pull you back up because that's Newton's third law. So you get lift from the, the lower surface of the wing by pushing air downwards. You get air giving lift to the top surface of the wing by pulling air down onto the wing. There's a net movement of air backwards and downwards, which creates a net force upwards on the aeroplane. And if you want to get really crafty and say, well, what about when you flip the aircraft upside down? How does it fly then? <laughs> Actually, what the pilot does is turns the aircraft into an attitude of flying with what's called a really high angle of attack. So what they do is, despite the fact that the wings the right way up are curved downwards and backwards, 
if you fly the plane upside down, you'll see that they actually fly with the nose of the plane really high. And that means that even though the wings are curved the wrong way, they've still got the front edge of the wing higher than the back edge of the wing, so you're still doing the same thing, although it's grossly inefficient to fly that way, so they don't do it for very long because they won't get very much speed. It won't be a comfortable ride, obviously, and, uh, and they won't keep flying for very long because the, the efficiency will, will mean they're burning through fuel much faster than if they were to fly the right way up. And that's why we're getting a Top Gun um, sequel. That is why. <laughs> Let's go to Lerato in Rustenburg, if you don't mind. Good afternoon, Lerato. Good afternoon. Um, I'd like to ask the naked scientist, when I use uh, metal cutlery to eat, I taste the metal and I end up using plastic. Why is that? Hi, Lerato. Well, it might be because you're doing electrolysis in your mouth. If you've got some fillings, have you ever had a tooth filled? Yes. Yeah, it could be that, because uh, a friend of mine had a pencil sharpener that was one of those old-fashioned metal pencil sharpeners and found that when they put that in their mouth, uh, the pencil sharpener being made of magnesium has a different electrical potential in saliva to the filling material, the amalgam in the fillings, which is made of mercury silver amalgam. And as a result of that, you actually produce an electrical current. And the funny taste you're getting could well be that you're doing electrolysis between your cutlery and your filling material using your saliva as an electrolyte. That would be my speculation. And that funny taste is because when you do electrolysis, you start to split apart water molecules and uh, make other ionic species migrate in your mouth. And that will produce flavoured ions that, that do stimulate your taste buds. And that will be the sensation you get. Wow, fascinating. Let's go to Sam in Johannesburg. Sam, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Gershon. And good afternoon, Doctor. Doctor, I've got a very strange one here. Uh, I suffer with rheumatoid arthritis, right? And, mm -hmm. and I, can, I can, you know, what is so strange, I can tell my family that it's going to rain. Even if the sun is shining, and then they say to me, but it's clear. And then all of a sudden, then it starts raining, even if the sun is shining. How do you explain that one? Well, uh, there's a couple of things. One is that you genuinely are psychic and that the weather <laughs> forecaster should be paying your fortune. The other is that you are falling into the standard bias that we all tend to fall into. We're all victims of this recall bias where when you make a prediction and it comes true, you will celebrate the fact, everyone will celebrate the fact and everyone will remember. And when you said it at the time that didn't come true, you forgot, they forgot and everyone let you off. And so as a result, you tend to ascribe to yourself more powers of prediction than you've really got. I mean, it could be a healthy helping of that. And that would be my suspicion that actually it's probably recall bias. But with people with joint problems and things, they are very susceptible to the weather and the temperature. Because as you know, with your condition, which is an inflammatory condition of especially the small joints in the hands and feet, neck is affected as well. People do feel very stiff when it's cold. And it can take a while to warm things up and get, get going again. And so it could well be that when the weather is changing, it is it is perhaps also doing things to um, your joints. And in, in that respect, also making you feel a bit stiffer and so on. So it, it could be that. But I'm more more putting my money behind the, the whole kind of recall bias idea. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess, you know, it happens. It, you hear it from people often. I'm not going to confirm nor deny whether I do that with 
you know, a history of playing certain sports and, you know, you feel a bit of an ache in a particular joint and then that's how you determine whether it's going to rain or not. But um, I, I find that quite interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Dr. Wall, I still have you on the line very quickly. I just wanted to check with you. Um, you know, our conversations around COVID-19 and I guess a lot of um, what we talk about um, with you is related to COVID-19 and, and the various variants and so on and so forth. I mean, with new variants persistently coming up and, and you know, uh, throughout the course of the years, um, the, or, or just under two years, we've had various variants. Are we seeing, are we, are we, do we know if we're going to see the end of COVID-19 or is it one of those things that we'll have to end up living with? And that easily we could find ourselves decades from now, even a hundred years from now, still dealing with COVID-19 in some shape or the other. If you asked somebody in about 1890, when there was a huge pandemic going around that everyone called the Russian flu at the mm. time, do you think we're ever going to escape this? They would have said, oh, yes, it'll be fine in a couple of years. Well, actually, they would be wrong, because if you walk out onto the streets of Johannesburg, take a nasal swab from somebody with a bit of a cold, you'll find that probably half the time, maybe 10% of the time, you will recover a coronavirus. And a proportion of those coronaviruses won't be COVID, although there will at the moment be COVID, quite a few of them. There will be a virus called OC43. And this particular coronavirus, we think, leapt out of cows and into people about 100 years ago. And at the time when it did it, it produced a very profound pandemic with very high levels of mortality, lots of prostration. Sure. There are medical reports of London of people being laid low. One of uh, Queen Victoria's close relatives in her immediate family was killed by it. And it claimed, you know, lots of lives around the world. And then what it did was to slowly adapt and sink into the, the sort of melia of microbes that infect us and became a common cold. That really is the direction of travel for most viruses. If they kill off their hosts too efficiently, then they're robbing themselves rather like a fire burning out of control. They're robbing themselves of, of, of um, potential victims. So really, most viruses will evolve into a situation where they are achieving the maximum spread, the maximum number of cases. Now, the way in which they do that isn't by automatically becoming more virulent. It can sometimes be by becoming less virulent. So one tempting hypothesis is that virus variants like Omicron, which are much less nasty, are better tolerated, they're better transmitted, because we tend to ignore them because they're not causing us too much bother. We will allow them free passage and they become like common colds. We just put up with them. They're an inconvenience, but we put up with them. So it may well be that COVID does evolve in that general direction. Let's hope it does towards something that's relatively benign, but will be probably ever present. We all agree it, it is endemicizing. That means it's circulating all the time in the population. Sure. And we don't think we're going to see the back of it. Well, again, that was the Naked Scientist. Thank you so much for your time. All the best to you. Happy Christmas. See you on the other side. Indeed, same here. Um, a minute to go before we get to three o'clock, and uh, yeah, that was absolutely fun.